Hello and welcome to the complete Shostov Kishlovsky. This is episode seven, No End. I'm Matt Gasteyer, is here and here as usual with uh, my co-host Travis Trudell. How you doing, Travis? I'm doing well. I mean, given what the movie is about, I'm yes. doing well. This is this is a pretty uh, a pretty tough film, um, both in terms of I think subject matter and um, just its complexity and, and depth. Um, and uh, we we will be talking a lot about that. And uh, the person who we will be talking with. Uh, is Caitlin from Her Head in Films, uh, which is a really great podcast, and um, we're really happy to have her on the show. So welcome, Caitlin. Hey, I'm really happy to be here with y'all. So your show is, uh, I think, one of the truly unique uh, podcasts out there uh, about film, and uh, I think it's a really special listen. Uh, Travis brought it to my attention, and I'm really, really happy that he did. I, I've really loved, uh, especially... Um, I'm a big Ozu fan, so I really loved your late spring episode and your Wanda episode. I found incredibly moving and uh, and I really uh, just sort of a must listen. I think for uh, for anybody who uh, loves that film. Uh, and uh, I, I I was hoping that you could talk just a little bit about your show, kind of what your thinking is behind it. Uh, there's probably some people who are listening uh, right now who haven't heard your show yet. So if you can uh, just say a few words about it, I think that would be great. Well, thank you so much for saying that. Like, it's really uh, moving to hear that because you never know sort of the impact or the reach that you have through a podcast. So I started Her Head in Films in 2016, sort of late in the year. And the impetus was out of like a sense of loneliness and isolation. I live in the rural South and I wanted an outlet for talking about like my profound passion for cinema and the way that it personally affects me. And what I'm trying to do on Her Head in Films is talk about art house cinema, this cinema that sort of, I think, gets really discussed in very academic and intellectual terms a lot of the time. I'm trying to talk about it in a more emotional and personal way and explore how a film affects me because cinema, especially art house, has really been life-saving for me. It's something that I've turned to to help me cope with trauma and grief. And on the podcast, I talk about loneliness, mental illness, my experience as a working class woman living in the rural South. But I also really center the emotional and subjective experience of a film, like how it can be transcendent and beautiful and life affirming and um, all of those things. So I'm really exploring the life that a film takes on inside of us after we watch it, how it shapes and influences us. And I'm obviously doing it through my own life, but I really hope that the people who listen to the episodes, maybe it gives them a different perspective on a particular film, like a Ozu or an Ingmar Bergman or a Michael Haneke. Uh, But I also hope that it makes them reflect or think about how a film has maybe personally or emotionally affected them. So I talk about my own life, but I hope that it inspires the listener to think about that in their own lives. So that's sort of, I guess, a summation of what her head in films is to me, at least. Yeah, your it 
the level of uh, openness and emotional uh, sensitivity you approach uh, both the films and uh, in being able to share parts of your own life is staggering to me. I'm I'm always one of those people that puts up a level of humor to protect myself and hearing you talk so openly about I think the last uh, episode I listened to was a uh, real women have curves and uh, that's one of my that was one of my secret favorites for a long time. I saw it when I was a uh, uh, budding cinephile and it was always one that has stayed with me and so hearing that episode on it and listening to how you related to the film was uh, just absolutely amazing to me and it really uh, uh, touched me in many ways and I, I truly appreciate what you're doing with your podcast and you I think you sell yourself short in terms of uh, just how universal uh, your stories are and how much it can be uh, in helping other people uh, come to terms with their own personal things as well as connecting with the film so thank you for continuously putting out a fantastic body of work oh well thank you so much yeah i mean i say art house but i do um i do films that are maybe not strictly art house you know i've done films from my childhood and all kinds of things i love it all i'm i'm really sort of omnivorous with cinema in a lot of ways but um but i sort of have a special passion for that art house stuff and uh, but it's really great to know that uh you personally you know have been affected by the episodes and that y'all enjoy uh listening to them it's really great to hear that yeah definitely and i mean you i i would i would say you know obviously you're not coming at it from an ac academic perspective but you do your research as well so that's always um definitely appreciated that you you not only are speaking to your own experience but you do know what you're talking about so that's that's it's useful because uh, there are a lot of people who just jump on the mic and uh, say yeah I think the Ozu I think he's either Korean or Japanese I'm not sure <laughs> yeah I mean when I first started the podcast like in if you listen to the earlier episodes they're kind of rough like it took me a little time to like get resources and like get a microphone and I think at first it was I didn't do as much research but then as I've done it and I've gained confidence and yeah. I've really wanted to learn more myself and educate myself and so I really try to do that with the episodes as well and like dig in read interviews you know and what I can and so I like that research and that process of learning and discovery yeah yeah, no, I mean, for anybody listening to this this show, I think they know all too well how much we uh, we like uh, the research a little bit too much, perhaps. So. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's kind of the fun part, right? It is, like yeah. learning, and then but then you have to actually start recording and you know articulate your thoughts. That's always the hardest yeah. part. <laughs> yes. Well, in this film that we're talking about today, I think has has both of these things. I, I think it benefits enormously from uh, research, both in terms of Kieślowski's own films, uh, but also Polish history. But at the same time, I think it can be fully appreciated as uh, a work uh, on its own, a, a personal film um, about uh, this particular woman's experience, about uh, the, uh, a, a man dealing with um, being in prison for political reasons. Um, I think there's a lot here that that is very universal um, and you don't need that extra layer, but I think it, it does certainly add something to uh, the appreciation of the film. 
Um, before we before we dive into it, uh, though, uh, Caitlin, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about Kishlovsky, um, your relationship with his films, um, maybe how you came to them, and then uh, just sort of how, how that's evolved as you've seen more of his work. I was really excited when uh, y'all contacted me to be on the podcast, because if any director um, is my favorite or just that I deeply love, it's Kishlovsky. Mm. You know, this is a director that I would say at this time in my life, he is my favorite director. And it can sort of change by the year, right? Like, depending on what you're going through as a cinephile, you'll have different directors that you really love. But for a while now, I've called him my favorite. And I really connect to his films in a way that's just deeply personal, almost ineffable. It's kind of hard for me to talk about his work. I haven't actually done a lot of episodes on my own podcast, like Her Head and Films about him. I mean, I did one on the Decalogue and the Double Life of Veronique, but I don't know if I articulated everything that I wanted to, because I think his work's hard to talk about sometimes. But the backstory and my relationship with Kishlovsky can really be dated back to 2011, That's when I really became a cinephile, I would say. That's when I got interested in European art house cinema. I was in my early 20s. And Kishlovsky was uh, one of the first directors that I watched. I just fell instantly in love with The Double Life of Veronique. It's one of my top three, probably, favorite films, along with The Passion of Joan of Arc and The Tree of Life by Terrence Malick. And I just fell deeply in love with that film and the colors and the, it, it was like, I'd never seen a film like it, like ever. And it completely entranced me. And I also watched some of the Three Colors trilogy. I loved red, I loved blue. And then later on, I saw Decalogue. So for me, Kishlovsky is like really intertwined with that time in my life. Like this sort of euphoric early days of me discovering cinema and falling in love with it, you know, when everything was new, when all these directors were so brand new to me, and I'd never really seen cinema like this, like, you know, um, in this way. And the, the reason I love him is that I really feel like he created, like, a really unique cinematic universe, like, the colors and the themes and the look and the actors and it's he he's emotional too I think his work is really emotional and it looks at these unseen connections between people he's exploring intuition feelings like these really intangible things like coincidence but then he also looks at death and loss and politics you know in his early work he's like one of the few directors where I've seen almost his entire filmography I haven't seen a lot of the earlier documentary stuff, but I've seen most of his feature films. And it's like when I'm watching his films, I just feel like I'm in this um, this interesting universe, this interesting world. Um, and so I just I love the films that he created. And it's it's like I, I struggle to talk about it because like, I think he doesn't really get talked about a whole lot. I mean, I know he's well known among cinephiles. Like I noticed when the Criterion Channel launched, they have um, they have an image from Three Colors Red, yeah. like in their in their email thing. So he's very emblematic in that way of like, here is art house cinema. You know, look at this image, and he's um, the perfect symbol, I think, of European art house cinema in a way. But I just don't know if he gets talked about in the same way that some of the other big directors do. So 
I don't know. I just love him. Yeah. It's really personal for me. No, I, I, that that's a great uh, summation. And um, I'm glad to have you on uh, this season talking about uh, your favorite director. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's funny as we start to watch more of these movies. I don't know how you, you're feeling about it, Travis, but I feel like these last two films, Blind Chance and, and No End, uh, illuminate a lot about the earlier movies and that emotional connection that he has both to the characters and that the characters have to their worlds. Um, you know, I think we touched on it in those early episodes, but it's, it's really, a a, a, they're not intellectual films from the perspective of being sort of cool, removed looks at these worlds. Um, he's, he's constantly interacting with them and, um, and responding to them on an emotional level. And I think this movie more than any, uh, illuminates that because this is a, a very, a very dark and sad movie, a mournful film. Um, before we, uh, we kind of get our first thoughts on it though. Um, I thought we should set up the movie a little bit. Did, did you, I, I'm, I'm launching this on you, Travis, cause I didn't tell you that you were going to do this, but did you okay. want to, did you want to set up uh, a little bit of the movie? Yeah, sure. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, at some point in his time during, uh, right after the, uh, I'm always forgetting the name of the good period of, uh, Poland history. Solidarity. Solidarity. Right after solidarity, uh, uh, a, Martial law was installed. Uh, a new person took over, and martial law was in effect. And uh, because of this, uh, it dialed back a lot of the freedoms that they were experiencing for that short amount of time, uh, both political and in terms of uh, uh, artistic freedoms. And and what uh, Kieślowski was noticing uh, was that a lot of people were being put on trial for very, very small crimes, and they were getting the most ridiculous sentences for them. So stuff like graffiti or, you know, having an underground newspaper or literature that they shouldn't have had. Uh, just really small, usually things that would have just been a slap on the wrist or something minor. They were getting these ridiculous sentences uh, that uh, did not, you know, fit the crime at all. So he decided he wanted to start, uh, uh, you know, moving back into documentary world, wanted to take the cameras, set them up inside of courthouses, and he fought, and he, he worked the system, and he finally got permission, and uh, the person that he kind of really got in touch with to help him with that was a lawyer by the name of uh, Shushtoff, uh oh, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because I didn't write it phonetically, Pisevich, yeah, Pisevich, there we go. Uh, Shristoff Pisevich, who was a lawyer at the time. And so uh, he was kind of not into the idea, but, you know, he set up the cameras and he started uh, recording uh, the sentencing portions of the trials. And what he noticed was, was anytime the camera was on or pointed at the judge, uh, the sentences were reduced dramatically or sometimes uh, just uh, not given out at all. Um, and he found that very 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 suspicious and so he started you know he was going into the courtrooms without without filming his camera sometimes just to watch them give reduced sentences to everyone he was almost like helping and uh and uh Pisevich also noticed it and they started kind of paying attention to this and it was weird uh he you know, it was just this idea of it being documented forever and ever and faces attached to the sentencing 
uh, it was really the power of cinema and the power of recording uh, these moments and these uh, these trials that kind of really changed the way things were going. But of course, that had an inverse effect. He he was not getting what he wanted, which was the drama and the uh, you know the craziness of these long sentences. So he he wrote to the ministry to get more money to pay his crew because they weren't getting paid but he had no footage and nothing cut together and they asked why and he said well they're not giving good they're not giving long sentences which started a whole crazy lineup where he was pulled <laughs> in people you know question question here uh the ministry played played him by uh taking part of his letter and uh, just disseminating it amongst other artists. So he, he was losing his circle of friends because they thought he was, uh, he was uh, ratting out on everyone. And so he had to go and fight for his good name and stuff like that. But in the midst of all this, he said, you know, I kind of really enjoy this idea of this story of these people on trial. And so he got together with his lawyer friend and you know, this is the beginning of their relationship and, you know, has moved on to other films uh, throughout his career, uh, especially the Decalogue and the Three Colors. And and so because of this uh, bond, they, they wrote this script together and uh, started filming it. And he uh, it it was automatically shelved, of course, as most of his films were, because uh, this time it was funny because the audience loved it. But both the opposition party hated it, the party in power hated it, the church hated it. No one liked it because of everyone thought it was doing the opposite of what the film was doing. So the opposition thought it was uh, too strong against them. The uh, party in power thought it was uh, too too uh, lenient and, and giving people too many bad ideas. And the church didn't like it because it was, uh, you know, there is uh, some suicide in the film. And then there's also uh, lots of... Uh, nudity and sexuality that they were very uncomfortable with so the movie got shelved for until like 1985 i believe so 1981 is the release date of this film and 1985 was when it was finally uh screened and uh, as usual kishlowski uh didn't like his film uh most of the times he doesn't speak too favorably about them as most artists do they pick apart all the things they find wrong with it and uh and yeah um and the film is about a, uh, a lawyer who uh, we meet at the beginning of the film and he is uh, he is uh, narrating the story of how he died and how he is kind of haunting their lives um, and we meet his wife and his child and his wife and what she's dealing with with the loss of her husband um, at the same time there's a story of a uh, a, pres- uh, a person that's been arrested uh, that was supposed to go to trial, and uh, Antek, the lawyer, who is the person who just passed away, he was the person representing him. So you know, there's they need uh, the wife's help to get the files so they can defend him and and continue through court. And so they bring in uh, Antek's uh, mentor, uh, played by uh, a character by the name of Labrador, and. Uh, so it becomes uh, a tale about both this courtroom trial, um, politics that is happening right then and there during martial law, um, the old and the new, and then also this idea of grief and suffering and loss, um, all rolled into one film. It's a lot. It's a lot of pieces, and a lot of stuff is happening uh, in the story itself, and it becomes uh, quite 
quite of a quite a tangle of emotions and politics and thoughts and ideas and uh uh yeah i i don't want to go into what i think about the film so far i'm just kind of setting it up and talking about no you uh, did a you did a, a very good job for uh for an improvised uh summary. yeah man so good job that at me. <laughs> <laughs> no i mean i think the one thing i w- i would add to that is he he definitely um it was still sharply critical of this film like his previous films but i think he was most defensive of this film of any of the films up to this point um and point he pointed out uh very uh very many times in interviews and they sort of combined them all within the kishlowski on kishlowski summary um of him saying that the one group that very gave a very warm reception to the film when it was released in 1985 and and by the way the movie was released uh, intentionally poorly, so it would be playing when another movie was being advertised to be played, and whenever it was advertised to be played at a theater, people would show up and it would be a different movie. So it was incredibly hard to f- to find this movie playing in theaters when it was released. But he said that the one group that really responded to the film was the audience, just the everyday uh, moviegoers in Poland at the time. And I think he he really felt like they understood that the movie was speaking to this time in Poland, this very dark period in the eighties. And that he was very proud of the fact that, that they felt like this film spoke to them and to their experience. And he got that aspect of it correctly. So, um, so I think from, from a perspective, that perspective, um, he felt like perhaps this was the best, the greatest success of his career up to this point. Um, that's a, his, his chief criticism of the movie. And we'll get into it as we go further was that this, this, these two stories, the, the story of the grieving widow, the story of the, um, the trial, and then the sort of bridge of the ghost story, um, never really fully came together. Whether that's true or not is up for debate, and I'm sure we'll talk about it as we go on, but I think that was his main point of um, regret in terms of feeling like he could have done more to make this movie more effective. Um, that being said, uh, Caitlin, what what do you think of No End? I saw it the first time a few years ago. It was one I had really been wanting to see. It was like one of the last films that I hadn't seen by him of like his feature films. And watching it again for the podcast, it's, I think it's like a visually interesting film. And also it's, I think it, it really merges the personal and political in an interesting way. And this feels like a really transitional film for him. I mean, maybe that's just me thinking that. But it's like for the first time, he's working with his his co-writer, Christoph uh, Pischewicz. And he's also working for the first time with the composer, Zbigniew Preisner. And the music in it is incredibly haunting. And so from that moment on, he works with Preisner in a lot of his other films. And... It also feels like a bit of a precursor to some of his later work. And you'll see themes in No End that he'll circle back to in in other films. Like, you know, Grief, The Grieving Widow, as you said. Like, he'll come back to that in Three Colors Blue. Or, like, Death is in The Double Life of Veronique. Even, like, Heart Conditions, like 
um, in this film, Antec seems to die of a heart attack, and that's something that sort of recurs through his later work, too, like in Veronique. And also the justice system. Um, he'll come back to that in a short film about killing later on um, with the Decalogue. It's definitely uh, a more political film than his most famous films. Uh, and you kind of need to know about Poland and the Polish history and the political stuff that was happening in Poland. Whereas maybe with Veronique or the Three Colors trilogy, you didn't quite need to know that context or, or all of that political information. So it's very much connected to Poland in that way and needing to know what was happening. And I, I like the film. Um, I do think it's like a very moving exploration of loss, the aftermath of losing someone you love. And how the relationship with the dead doesn't end once they're gone. That maybe something lives on. or, But I think it also looks at how maybe not everyone can continue living when they've lost someone that they deeply love. And I really see it as a film about a woman who is struggling with grief. Who's maybe unraveling or coming undone because of her grief. And... um but he's really also exploring that relationship between the living and the dead. And there was this great quote that I wanted to mention from Annette Ensdorf's book, Double Lives, Second Chances. And it's a quote by Kishlovsky where he's talking about no end. And he's talking about that relationship between the living and the dead. And I think that's one of the most powerful things about the film. And he said, quote, I do think there's a need within us, not only a need, but also a fundamental kind of feeling to believe that those who have gone and whom we dearly loved, who were important to us, are constantly within or around us, unquote. So I do think that No End is really exploring that in a really deep and substantial way, I think. No, I, 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 I agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I think the, the strongest parts of this film are the truly emotional parts uh dealing with the loss and the grief and the layers in which she's willing to or the length she's willing to pursue to kind of deal with this um that was the part that that was the sections of the film that resonated with me the most yeah um it's just it's that you know tragically lyrical uh hauntingly beautiful and devastatingly beautiful just imagery he's creating and uh the screen presence of uh oh man Grashana Shupovska uh playing uh Ursula Zero um she is uh, besides being uh just you know the way the way she processes grief uh in her face in her eyes and in her emotions uh is really uh tough to watch because it is very it's it's very raw and very emotional and that was the those were the sections that really uh stood out to me um as a whole i think i think some of the other sections are weaker where we're discussing the political aspects of the film I think I found that I just find that the the political section when he when he tries to be political I think there's something lost uh, the films in which he kind of uh, just tells a story within the realm of the politics that are happening at the time 
uh, speak more strongly about the politics of Poland at the time he's making the film. And when he when he makes the effort to, I'm thinking of like uh, uh, the Scar and what was the other film that he was uh, 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 the Calm. Short working day. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. when he's when he's making a political statement in his film, um, it doesn't seem to work on the level that I would. I think I'd like it to work on. I think because politics is so antiseptic and less emotional, like this idea of politics or the idea of the justice system. Even though there's so much emotion tied into these things for the people that are within that those moments. Um, it just always seems to be less emotional in terms of a filmic language. Uh, it's hard to kind of, you know, besides making propaganda films, which he's trying not to make, uh, you know, if you're, you know, you got your Lenny Riefenstahl pumping your fists in the air, just nationalism type films, it's hard to do poli- political films without it being having like an emotional core that makes it human and humanizes the uh the theory the idea the concept or the law or whatever item that we're trying to talk about is uh it makes it hard for me to kind of connect with it and so i found the film to be kind of lopsided um the emotional resonance i felt with the main uh female character really kind of pulled me into the film and then when we start talking about the importance of uh, the politics of making a statement, making a stand, and the uh, older and younger uh, lawyers uh, arguing about this, I kind of it took me out of that emotional universe that he was drawing me into. And you know, maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't. Uh, I can see this is where he might feel like those those uh, ties aren't as tight as he would like them to be. Um, I did feel that as well while watching the film, but overall, you know, the good out, you know, when I say the bad, it's not bad. There's no, you know, there's nothing in here that I'm just like, this is technically horrible or, you know, it's still a, you know, fantastically well thought out, well shot, well scripted, uh, well performed film. Like, you know, as we've said before, his, his lesser films are still better than a lot of other films out there. And, and by no means is this film uh, a lesser film. I just don't think it worked the way I would like it to. Um, so, that being said, Matt, how do you feel about the film? <laughs> well, I, I largely agree with you. I think the political elements are less engaging than the uh, the story of of this woman um, and her the death of her husband. Um, I think part of the reason for that is not any fault of the political story, which I think has some very interesting elements, but rather the strength of the story of this woman, um, Mm -hmm. Ursula, because I mean, this is, this is a a remarkable performance. I think, um, it's, uh, the first, uh, female protagonist that we've encountered in Kieślowski's films, um, and I think that, uh, it's apparent, um, that he, he has a, a strength with female protagonists, uh, that obviously will pay off later in his career. Um, and 
her and with female actresses as well, just because like this is a really great performance. And when she's on screen, there's very little else that you are paying attention to in terms of, um, you know, is this guy going to get off? I don't, I, I don't really feel like anybody is necessarily even that invested in that aspect of the story when they watch this movie, even people who are heavily invested in the politics of Poland at the time. I think it's very obvious that that aspect of the movie is intended to be a device with which to discuss the political philosophy behind both the um, the depressed sort of mainstream middle um, and the um, and the, the the workers and people who are oppressed fighting to try to make a difference and make a change in their country. Um, I think that aspect of it probably outweighs any of the details of the story here. And so it does get a little bit lost and you do find yourself, I, I wouldn't say I was, um, I think all of those scenes are really interesting. I probably could have done without the scene of the intern, um, visiting Darek in prison. Uh, you know, it just, it, it, to me, the, the, the narrative momentum of the film grinds to a grinds to a halt there. Um, but I think, uh, ultimately this is a movie about a woman, um, grieving the loss of her husband. And in a sense that's being used as a metaphor for, uh, the, the grief of Poland at the time. But I, I, like I said earlier, I don't think that it's necessary to, um, approach it on that level. And as a film, I, I, I find it to be incredibly moving, um, if extremely difficult to watch. Um, you know, I think despite the fact that in a way this movie ends similarly to Blind Chance, uh, Blind Chance is a much more kind of just straightforward, entertaining, intellectual exercise. Um, and this, this has something very deep and, and hard hitting at its core that I think is going to speak to just about anybody who watches it. It, It's, it's hard for me to imagine not being affected by the end of this movie. And so, uh, from that perspective, I, I have to look at it as a success, but, um, I do think there are some uneven aspects to the film. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I think there's always a danger with political art that the characters become sort of cardboard right. cutouts, yeah. you know? And, you know, I think he did a good job with a political story in like a short film about killing. I mean, I know y'all haven't talked about it yet, but that's a film about the justice system, about the death penalty, about something that's really political, which is the death yeah. penalty. And yet it's in, incredibly powerful. It's haunting. I mean, I still think about that film personally, and I think it's a strong film by him. So he he showed that he could merge like the personal and political in a really powerful way. But I, I agree with y'all when it comes to the political aspect of it that I don't know if it quite worked for me. And it's interesting to like start with his like with Veronique and the three colors trilogy because you know the colors and the stories and then when you go back and you watch some of the earlier work like no end they're very different you know the colors are different the stories are different 
the political aspect is is definitely different too so I went into no end like I was really excited about it like oh I'm gonna love this and I came out with I really loved the Ursula part and looking at this grieving woman and her trying to raise her son and continue and all of that but then the political part of it didn't quite work for me. I didn't feel invested in Derek and Joanna yeah. personally. Mm. I didn't maybe if he had fleshed them out more, you know, if he had given them more of a backstory, told us more about Joanna. I mean, I got to thinking uh when I was thinking, you know, about what I liked about the film or different points that I wanted to talk about that in a, in a way both Ursula and Joanna have lost their husbands. It, but in different ways. Yeah. You know, Ursula's husband's dead and Joanna's husband is in prison. But we never really feel that with Joanna. You know, we don't get to really go into her world or her inner life. What it's like to try to raise her child while her husband's in prison, right? So maybe if he had fleshed that out more, we would have felt more invested in the political story that was going on. Or like, uh, like with Labrador, we didn't quite you know know a lot about him either whereas with a short film about killing that lawyer you felt really connected to him mm. so i just think there are political aspects that just didn't quite work in the film but it has some amazing stunning visuals like when they go to the cemetery and you know and just different in you know, different scenes i'm sure we'll go into no that's a that's a great point i think uh, uh it's weird because one of the reasons why he wanted to write this film was he wanted to present these uh, these families that are being completely destroyed by these uh, unjust and unfair uh, sentencings? Uh, so he wanted to. That's why he he tapped uh, uh, it to help him uh, get in touch with these families and interview and talk to them, so he could write a story about the emotional turbulence and. Uh, you know, just the pain that was that they're going through uh, in these moments, and I think that's where I think you're right. I think if we would have, if he would have paralleled it, the concept of two women who are both in the pro- one has lost her husband and one is mm. losing her husband, I think it would have been a stronger film than to focus too much on the lawyers portion of the film because it just doesn't it isn't as strong because it's almost like anytime we go and see labrador and his assistant it's like just a monologue about a political point uh justice or fairness or you know how things have changed from uh previous uh previous points in polish history and how it is now and uh, yeah. aging out of the system so it becomes it becomes something that is less interesting than the emotional content which we're getting in the other parts of the film. Well, it does seem like he makes the mistake with Joanna that he doesn't make with Ursula to a certain degree where he's defining her a little bit by the men who surround her, both the lawyers who are defending her husband, but then also the one moment that we do get from her, which is a little bit of a personal emotional moment is her breaking down about the fact that she's torn between her husband and her father and the fact that they have these political differences and again you're just pulling back to the political aspect of what is damaging her world instead of the 
the sort of emotional core of what she's experiencing. Um, you know, whereas on, on the other hand, you've got Ursula who is so wrapped up in her own situation and her own interior life that it's hard for her to even be aware of what's going on around her. Um, one of my favorite moments is when the uh, the the long the friend uh, the longtime friend sort of confesses his love to her and says you know uh, you know he wants to marry her and and she just says don't just don't <laughs> that's yeah. just the end and uh, you know I mean she's not even like she's not even there at, at this point you know she's completely in her own world. Um, you know, dealing with her, with her husband and, uh, and, you know, we get to see that experience and, and the evolution of her grief, uh, through the course of the film. Whereas with Joanna, all we're really seeing is the impact of Polish political, the Polish political life on her family, which is ultimately a lot less engaging, yeah, and the other point uh, talking about uh, with her being disengaged from this situations that are around her, uh, you know, when Joanna actually uh, says to her out loud, like, "You don't even care about this," and she's like, "No, I, I don't." Yeah. Even you know, she even though she's doing the work, finding the information, going to her house, bringing her kids shoes, you know, stuffing money into the envelope to help her friends out, and she's she's making the effort. But at the same time, it's it's just going through the motions to stay connected. And, you know, and when she makes the decision to disconnect completely from that world after the trial, that's I mean, it's almost like she's just holding on to see what the results of her efforts are and then time to move on kind of uh, kind of thing. So I think uh, I think she yeah, I think her storyline and her character are the most effective. And I think. There's lots of lots of stages that she goes through throughout the film. Um, Caitlin, are there any uh, are there any uh, standout points or standout scenes uh, with Ursula that kind of uh, help flush out uh, moments of grief that she is going through and how she's reacting to uh, her world? Well, I mean, there's a moment when she's crying in the bathroom, you know, and the son finds her. I find that like as the film progresses she just starts to get much more unstable, I think. Like, at the beginning, she kind of has it together, and she's going through the motion, she's getting through it, she's getting the file, talking to Labrador, she's getting things done because she has to. But then as the film goes on, I think she does get more progressively starting to unravel and... So there's this scene where she, this is the first time that she's going to have sex with another man after the death of her husband. And she's at this bar or, or someplace and it, I think she's meeting somebody else, but then she sees this British man across the room and she notices that his hands are similar to Ontex and she becomes attracted to him because of that. And he's British, and he actually thinks that she's a prostitute. So there's a little bit of humor in the scene in that way of, like, he thinks she's a prostitute, but she's not. He, like, offers her $50, and then they go back to this hotel room together. And it's it's a, it's a powerful scene, like, at first, 
she seems really uncomfortable. Like that sex scene is not erotic no. in any way. No. It's like painful. It's raw. It's I was almost wondering if she even wanted to. I mean, the look on her face and she just looks like she's in terrible pain when she's with him. And um and before she even goes out to be with him, um Antek is there like in the bathroom. I don't think she can see him at that point. I don't think she's had that um, like revelation that he is present with her in in life still. But um, so it's this sort of strange thing that he's watching this um, in a way. But after they have sex together, um, she starts to talk about losing her husband, but she does it in Polish. And this British guy doesn't know Polish. So she's basically just sort of talking out loud to herself, and and, and she's a tra- just just so people at home know she's a translator. Um, so she speaks yeah. full English. She could be speaking to him in English if she wants to, and she makes exactly. sure that he doesn't know Polish before she says anything. Exactly. She asks him, "Do you know Polish?" And he says, "No." And she says, "Quote: My husband died thirty six days ago. One moment he was there, and then he was gone." Now I realize how happy I was. I can't get over it. I still see him before me. I can't forget him, unquote. And it's this stunning scene. I mean, I think of any scene in this film, this is the one that really stays with me. Um, I think it shows how haunted she is by what's happened. And it's really the first time that she's able to talk about her grief, to articulate it. You know, up to that point, she hasn't really, she's really alone. Like, she hasn't really opened up to anybody or talked to anybody about what's happened. And I think it's it's interesting that she's, she's speaking in Polish and he doesn't know what she's saying. And so, it's like she can, she can't say these kinds of things um, in English. She can't translate it. She has to speak it in her native tongue. And maybe she can't even say these things to the people who know her because they wouldn't even understand. They they would not be able to understand because they don't know the language of loss the way that she does. She's gone through something incredibly um, explosive. Like it has ruptured her life to lose her husband. They were together 11 years. We learn that in another scene in the film. And so... I think it's it's her attempt to talk about it and to speak it in some way, but in a way that's safe. Like, he doesn't know what she's saying, so she can say whatever she wants. She doesn't have to deal with someone judging her or saying, oh, move on or right. get over it. Or she can just speak it. She can just say, I lost this person. It's killing me. You know, it's so painful. I miss him. I miss the life that we had together. And I just think there's something so powerful about, I mean, she's, she's like physically naked, you know, she's very vulnerable. She has no clothes on, but then she's also verbally naked. She's emotionally naked in that scene and talking about what Antec's death has done to her, you know? And I also saw the scene as maybe an attempt to recreate her relationship with Antec through someone else because his hands remind mm. her of Antec. It's almost like he's the substitute or something mm. or a replacement that she's using in that moment to try to, to try to touch what she had at one point. She's trying to find him again, just like when she goes to the hypnotist for the second time 
after her attempt to forget him proves unsuccessful because at first she goes to this hypnotist later on she wants to try to forget but of course she can't and that's when she first sees Antek and realizes that he's present in her life still and then she goes back to him because she wants to see Antek again and um so she she feels that need for some kind of connection with him and I think she tries to find it through this British man and of course she can't you know but then also her talking about her grief and her loss and and I just thought it was a really fascinating scene I've I've never come across anything like it and I just thought that it was one of the standout scenes in this film yeah I agree I I think the in a way it's it's her way of um maintaining her privacy and sort of uh her personal internal experience while uh also having somebody there with her you know it's she's both more more and less alone at the same time um i want to speak to uh your kind of question about sort of him being there in the bathroom before she comes in because i do think it's an interesting thing to think about whether this ghost is really there in this movie or if she it's really her experiencing um the presence of her lost loved one um if the if it's sort of you know if it's truly a movie about ghosts or if this person is thinking about this person being with them um because i i feel like in that moment you know i think it's a, a bit inevitable for what she's going through in that instance for her to feel like he's watching her and whether he's sort of judging her or protecting her or um simply just looking you know observing what she's doing um you know i think that could easily sort of come from her in the same way that kishlowski talks about in the interviews how he feels like any decision that he makes he's making thinking about what his father would think of it and then taking that into account in the decision that he's making. And in that way, his father is still with him. I think in, in a lot of ways, her experience throughout this movie in interacting with, uh, with her, her dead husband is her experience of thinking about, you know, what would he do in this situation? Um, you know, there's a really interesting moment. So the first, the first sort of physical manifestation of the, um, of the, the ghost is the question mark next to the lawyer's name, um, in, in his documents. And later on in the movie, she's reading a note that had been written by him and she says, uh, and then there's either an exclamation mark or a question mark at the end of the sentence. And I can't, I could never, I could never read his handwriting and it sort of calls into question that specific question mark like that that line to me is there for a reason and it's to me it's it's saying well okay well did she put that there but at the same time like did he put was it the ghost that put it there and is this was this maybe an exclamation point all along and he thought labrador was the perfect person for the job mm-hmm. um so I, I think there's there's all sort of mystery surrounding surrounding that aspect of the film and i don't think you can necessarily take it on face value that this is a real uh ghost that's there um and and that you know that this could just be all in her mind and part of her 
um, grieving process. Yeah, absolutely. I had actually not thought of it that way, but it actually makes a lot of sense that when someone passes, like there are a lot of people who think, oh, they're looking over me or they're, right. yeah. And so Kishlovsky is ex- maybe exploring that because I wouldn't call him like a religious director, but there's a spirituality in his work or like a metaphysical component to it. And so I think that he's probably sort of probing her inner life and imagining that she would think that he's there exactly that oh you know what if he's watching us you know now I'm being with another man and yeah I think that makes a lot of sense actually and she and maybe that's why she kills herself you know she thinks that there is another life there is this afterlife and that she can go and find him again and be with him again and I think she's she wants that desperately to be with him again and she just she can't let that go she can't let him go their connection is so powerful in that way now would we would we all agree that his his spirit or his the ghost of him is hanging over everyone and everyone's choices because he appears yeah on screen in the background or in passing or in the wings or sometimes very front, you know, front and center in a lot of scenes in this film. Yeah. Um, Including, yeah, he, he visits Darek in, in prison. Yeah. Yeah. Mm Darek in prison Mm -hmm. when he has his moment where he decides to finally, uh, live. Um, it's almost that, you know, that moment where he decides to break his hunger strike and finally go to court and plead guilty so he can just be done with everything. Um, Dark's there, and Dark's also there when uh, Labrador is deciding whether or not to. Uh, this is where his like kind of these moments of chance, or uh, you know, that I think uh, uh, Caitlin was talking about earlier when she was talking about what draws her to his films. Uh, these moments of chance that maybe this is more of a fate thing because this is our past coming up and helping us make these decisions. Because there's like three or four moments in which he physically physically does something to change the outcome of events uh, from the question mark in the book. And when we say that this person is here, this uh, for those who haven't seen this film and are listening this far, I can't believe you are. You should just watch this movie because we are ruining this for you. But at the same time, for those who said, well, screw it, I'm not going to watch this movie because I can't find it, so I'm just going to listen to this podcast, uh, he is a physical presence in the film. He's not just like when we talk right. about this ghost that's haunting her. It's not this idea. He's physically there for a lot. Well, and he he's the first person the to speak in the movie, and and he yeah. addresses the camera directly. Uh, apparently, there were more. Um, there was a lot more footage with him uh, filmed for the movie, but eventually was cut. Um, and I think he's in in this film just the right amount. I don't I don't think yeah. that. Um, you know, I, I think it gives her a little bit more space to to have her emotional arc explored um, rather than make this movie about the dead husband, um, I think yeah. would be a much less interesting film. So, I, you know, I, I do uh, appreciate that aspect of it. The other interesting thing to me is that when I was watching this movie the second time, there's a lot of people like just standing around staring into the distance in this movie who aren't 
really talking to anybody like i'm not trying to get like say this is like this that this is like the first version of the sixth sense or something like it's you know like (laughs) like how sliding doors was a bad remake of blind chance but like there's a lot like there's people and there's a lot of people in this movie that could totally also be ghosts that are hanging around uh Mm. waiting for you know their lost loved ones to to join them um and and of course just i mean the 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 way the movie is structured with opening with the candles, um, which, you know, were a direct reference to the the use of candles during martial law. But of course, especially in the Catholic faith, there's, an, uh, you know, the association of candles with funerals um, and, and just generally like there's a very it's a very mournful opening you know with candles in the dark um the the sarah the the um the burial the uh ceremony that they attend uh for for him um and then there there's sort of people just standing on the road selling candles uh, as she's walking by um there's there's sort of death all around you in this movie um so yeah i mean it's it goes it goes beyond him but he's still sort of the the central driver of that mystical aspect of the movie yeah and the you know talking about the candles that i really in you know the image if we're going to turn it into like a politicized image is these are all singular deaths but when we pull back and he takes the camera super high up in the air and we can see how all these deaths are connected and it's uh it's there's more like all these things tie us together just the way that you know you see individual candles being lit and then we pull to a god's eye view of everything and we just see a massive amount of fire on the earth and just all the death that is around us and how we're actually more connected than we think to it um i thought that to be a very beautiful visual uh, metaphor for uh talking about unity and talking about how we're all in this kind of stuff together because that's a that's part of what he when he talks about this time, this uh, martial law, this time in their lives, he refers it to it in the uh, uh, Kishlovsky on Kishlovsky book as uh, when they collectively bowed their heads and yeah. didn't pick them back up again because they had they were done fighting. They were just they couldn't they just gave up and then they couldn't get back into it and they left it for the younger generation to kind of take over, which is. You know, which is sad. There is that feeling of mournfulness and mm. loss throughout this whole film, and there is a mournfulness to, uh, you know, what had happened to him and his friends and his family and the people in his life at that time, and the whole the whole of Poland at that time. That uh, and that opening image is a powerful statement that kind of ties into that idea. Um, but taking it back to our metaphysical friend, uh, on uh, not Antek, yeah, Antek, uh. You know, there's moments where he uh, changes the outcome of things by physically doing something, whether it be add a question mark into that uh, ledger or knocking the watch out of Labrador's hand as he passes. Um, so it takes he makes he makes him give pause and think for a second a little deeper about his relationship with Antec because it was a watch he gave right. him to possibly even stalling his wife's car so she does not get into a car accident further up the road. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a there's there's three or four moments like that in this film where he kind of... Uh, the newspaper. Him, yeah. yeah, the newspaper, taking the newspaper away. He has these moments where he kind of alters the future a bit 
um, by pausing and slowing something down. Um, so there's a there's an element of time in this film that he explores as well. Not so on the nose, but it's a uh, it's running throughout the film. Just this idea of time and how it uh how these small moments uh, you know building upon the idea of blind chance. How these small moments can alter uh, futures of people and the future and the way of things. And I think uh, it's a it's interesting is he orchestrating all of this to get to the end he wants with his wife being with him mm. like that's that's the other thing like are we seeing this really bizarre or not bizarre but really kind of dark and depressing you know is he altering this future so his wife will be with him so well if he but if he dead? i guess the the devil's advocate of that would be if he saves saves her life in the car accident like you know, if he had if he had not stalled the car, then she would have died, and they would have been together. Yeah, but she didn't realize she misses him so that's badly true. at that point. <laughs> like that's the thing, right? Like it's almost like he puts her through yeah. this grief. Like I mean, if you want to go with that route, I don't think. That's well, he the, might also. The, the, the other thing is film. that she she helps shepherd along this case that obviously meant a lot to him. So if you if you want to go to the extra mile and that you know it, she gets to the end of the case he he gets her to the result even if the result isn't necessarily a, a positive result it's the end of this this thing that he wasn't able to see through and so then she's able to to join him after that um i mean just to touch on what you you mentioned um I, I found I found this section of of the Kishlovsky on Kishlovsky book to be just brutally sad. Um, I was very emotional reading it. I, I think in I, as I was reading it, I felt like it was it was very it's it was very odd just to hear his his mindset during this period because it it read so much like a person that had given up on life and to know that this person for the next 10 years would go on to do the work of their career, the things that they will be known for, you know, as long as movies are around. Um, it, it, it makes those films just uh, so bittersweet. You know, I think that this experience to him was so uh, just life altering in every way um, and it really um, underscores just how much he uh, relates to this woman and her experience and, and really just poured his own feelings of loss and grief about his country and about the life that he was hoping they would have for themselves um, and that was taken away in this most brutal and violent way, um, you know, to... to to pour that into this woman's experience and certainly to end it the way that it's ended in this movie, I think is just, um, it's quite sad. <laughs> it's a, it's a very intense, uh, concept even just to, to conceive of, um, to want to, to make a movie like this about your country. And, and I think her, her process is tied to that as well. Just her experience of, um, you know, hearing her son, uh, hearing her son went to this march and that there were tear gas canisters and, um, he's now listening to opposition music. Um, 
she feels like she is going to lose the next generation of this country uh, to more uh, violence and strife. And it's just, uh, it's a, it's a very um, potent and, um, and mournful metaphor. Yeah. Also, like, I know our political situation is not the same. I would never want to equate them together because this is Poland in the 1980s. This is America in 2019. But there was something about the darkness of the political situation Mm -hmm. that resonated with me. Like, this is a dark time for us as a society here in the United States. I mean, I thought the Bush years were (laughs) about as low as we were going to go. And that was still a very terrible time. But I think we have hit a different level here in the U.S. uh, with this presidency. And that was something, even though the political part didn't totally work with me, it's like I could feel like that defeat that people feel or that sense of helplessness and powerlessness that I'm sure Kishlovsky felt. I don't think it's any surprise that he, some of his best work happens outside of Poland, you know, where he has to get out of it. And I mean, I don't know if that's why he went to France or, or all of that, but I just think it's interesting how different the work is when he leaves Poland. And I think he probably got really, it sounds what you're what you're saying that he got really sort of beaten down by the political situation that it was difficult for him to cope with it and i do think there's that sense of paralysis here in this country even though there is great activism going on there is the resurgence of the left and there's there's things that make me hopeful but there's also things that i really struggle with and i don't have a lot of hope and I guess I do kind of have like a bleak worldview about things, yeah. um, you know, with climate change and nothing's being done about it. And I think we have a younger generation that I think they're going to be active politically, but I think they're also, I think there's also probably a lot of hopelessness with them too, of like uh, in this dark political time. And I think that that resonates. That is something about the film that I kind of connected to a bit of this sense of people feeling trapped in this system that they cannot change and that they cannot overcome. And something else I wanted to say was I appreciated this perspective on grief in the film because I think especially here in the United States when it comes to grief, there is this sense that you should pull through and you should move on and you should get over it and uh you know we have this positivity and this optimism and i don't think we really know how to like handle people who are struggling with grief who don't get over it in a few months or a few years even that's been my own experience when i've been you know i've been struggling with grief over a decade now because i lost my father when i was a teenager and it just doesn't go away for me personally you know but it feels like other people are able to cope better and they're able to move on and you know here's me and I can't and you know what's wrong with me so with Ursula I could relate to Ursula I could feel what Ursula felt that you know here is this hole that's been blown in her life blown in her heart and her body you know she's lost something so precious and even though she has a son even though she has so many things to live for, she can't quite get it together. She she has lost her will to live, 
She's lost her connection to life. She keeps it together long enough to see the case through. I think she feels a sense of probably responsibility to Joanna and Labrador and Derek, you know, that they need to do this. But once that's over, once those connections are severed, you know, it's just her and the little boy. And I just think that she's not able to to cope with that, that for the rest of her life, she's going to have to raise her son. She's going to have to live without this person that she profoundly loved. And you don't just get over that. Like, you know, you don't just snap your fingers and it's over or you're okay. So I kind of um, appreciated this messy, complex, sort of dark, melancholic view of grief and loss. It's one that I don't think we see enough in our own country, in our own representations of grief. Um, uh, grief is complicated and messy, and it, it can last for a long time. It can last forever. And so in Ursula, I sort of found someone that I did relate to. I, I, it resonated with me personally. You know, it may not resonate with everybody because everybody copes with things in different ways. But I appreciated this sort of darker view of grief personally. Yeah. yeah, no, and one of the hardest parts of that grief was, you know, in most movies they use children as a way to pull through as being the thing that's worth living for. And just watching her realize that all her son is going to do is make her realize how much she misses her husband, how much, you know, it is that is her other part and that is him and it's never going to be something that she feels that she can... Rectify or, or just kind of put aside because every time she sees him, he is the you know the result of their love is him, and now he is the representation of what she no longer has. So to you know pass you know even to take you know and she loves him. You know she does love him. She you know she fears for him. She's sad that he is going to be in a world in which he has to go to protests and know the smell of tear gas and to grow up in the society. And, you know, and you know that she loves him by the fact that she takes him to go live with his father's mother, not her mother, because she knows that he likes her more. That that little telling moment that he goes that she does that before she decides she goes to the court case to see her husband's final wishes out and then, you know, uh, goes and ends her life. It's, you know, she does she does have emotions she does have feelings and she knows what she's doing but at the same time it's that is that is just really brutal to think about you know this concept of all this child is going to do is to cause misery in your life because it's just a complete representation of what you've lost is uh is hard and knowing that and coming to terms with that for herself to uh I can't even I can't begin to understand that and that's that was one of the parts of this film that really got to me. Yeah, I I um really liked that she was not just uh careless with him that it was clear that that she was um somebody who really cared about her child and I'm I know that there are people who strongly believe, you know, you uh, you left him alone, so you know how can you say you care? I don't. I don't really um, buy into those arguments. Um, I think that one of the things that I really like about this depiction of her here is that she makes a lot of mistakes, and I don't mean mistakes from the outside, but I think things that she feels like she uh, 
shouldn't have done or maybe even didn't want to do as she was doing them, but she did them anyway because she that was that was just her process of dealing with what she was dealing with. Um, you know, she says after she sleeps with the British guy, um, who by the way has the worst back hair I've ever seen in my entire life. Oh, I thought it was. A, I thought he had a tramp stamp tattoo on his lower back, and then I saw it was back hair. I was like, oh my, that is just it's poor crazy. guy. Yeah. I thought I was the only one. Oh no, no. Um, but that is a tra- that is unattractive to all genders. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but after 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 she sleeps with him, she says, you know, I was unfaithful to my husband, which of course, you know, her husband had had died. Um, but I, I think she, you know, she she made the decision that she needed to make in that moment. And even if she thought ultimately that it was the wrong decision, that was her process. And that was how she needed to, you know, get through what she was struggling with um, so much. And there's all these little moments throughout the movie where she is seeing his absence. It starts at the very beginning when she makes two cups of coffee and then pours one of the cups down the drain. Um, and the, the, the sort of coffee is a recurring thing throughout the movie or glasses, people drinking, um, Labrador hands off glasses. Um, and of course then the final moment is viewed through, through glass as they're walking away. Um, since in the introduction of him as a character is we first see him as a reflection in a glass. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well there's lots of mirrors in Kishlowski and that that definitely comes mm. through here as well. Um since we are talking about this process of her grieving and obviously the eventual thing that she gets to even though we're we're not quite at the end here, uh we might as well talk about this ending. Um I I I'm fully on board Caitlin, with what you're saying about the fact that, um, you know, this is a very realistic depiction of grief. And um, sadly, this does uh, end in this way very frequently. Um, I, uh, I guess maybe I'm inspired by your own personal uh, confessions on your on your show. But um, I have a history of suicide in my family. Uh, My grandmother and uncle killed themselves. Um, uh, when I was very young and, uh, it is a very complicated issue, obviously. And a lot of people have very strong opinions about it. Um, I, I think that the way that her death is depicted in this film is very respectful, but at the same time, I, I, I do think that, um, there is something uncomfortable to me about the way that I think ultimately this is shown as, a bit of a happy ending. Um, you know, they're walking off into the distance, holding hands. Uh, they're finally together. I think in a way, perhaps Kishlovsky, if you, if you take the political metaphor further is saying that this generation needs to cleanse itself, um, in order for, uh, life to move on both for sort of the younger generation and for the country as a whole, but just in terms of a personal depiction of suicide, um, you know, I think I'm not fully on board with this depiction. It makes me a little bit uncomfortable, I think. Yeah, um, it, it's, it is a disturbing ending. And 
it brought to mind Sylvia Plath for me. Yeah. I don't know if he was at all inspired by, um, you know, that at all. I don't know. But she did a similar thing where she um, turned the oven on and, you know, killed herself right. through, ga- through gas. And, um, and it seems like people are very obsessed with that part of her biography as the way that she killed herself and obsessed with her death in that way. I do wonder if the suicide is it sort of becomes spectacle or it's sort of exploitative to show her putting the tape over her mouth yeah. and show her with the oven. And it is sort of, I don't know if I'm finding the right word for it. It's, I, I don't know if I liked it either. Like when I was talking about grief, I, I didn't necessarily mean the suicide part. Yeah. You know, I meant more of like her struggling, showing that struggle, showing her crying and, you know, trying to just get through it. And um, I think when it comes to suicide, it's important not to romanticize it or, um, you know, or anything like that. Yeah, there's and, a bit of like a ceremonial aspect to it yeah, in, in the way yeah, it's depicted there, here, right? Yeah, I definitely see your point in that. And um, I don't know if y'all have read the Annette Instorf book. Did, have you read that? Yeah. The yes. Double Lives, Second Chances. And she said that the original title was supposed to be Happy End. And not no end. Right. Um, in her chapter on no end. It, I was I, I was kind of uncomfortable with that, too, of showing them hand in hand. I mean, here is a woman. I mean, the, the aftermath of her death is going to be immense for that child, right? I mean, mm, yeah. he's just lost his father. Now he's going to lose his mother. And it, we see them hand in hand walking, and it's... Yeah, I think it did make me uncomfortable too, and I'm not, I'm not sure like maybe how that was supposed to function, or I don't. It makes me uncomfortable too. Like I don't even know how to talk about it because I don't fully know how I feel about it, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But there was something sort of off about it. It was shocking to to see it for sure. Yeah, it felt. Mm, I think the thing that. Uh, it's almost too symbolic of a gesture yeah. as a reference to the political aspect of this film. Mm. The, you know, silent, you know, the taping of the mouth, the silencing of your voices yeah. and, and, and cutting the phone, off, the tapped phone line. Phone. Yeah. Yeah. Un- disconnecting yourself from the situation and removing yourself. So another generation can come up and take, you know, take control kind of thing. It was. I think that that was the thing that got me. It was a little too like the you know the preparing herself that she's meticulous and thought out in what she's doing. I you know I comprehend that like it's something a decision she's come to. But one of the things that and it's crazy because it's said in the book that they're holding hands, walking off together, and we've mentioned it twice now. But they never hold hands as they walk off together. It's really weird. Everyone remembers it as a walking mm. off, touching each other, but they don't. It's strange. Like I, and it, it's even in the book that they're holding hands. And so when I, when I, when I watched it again today to kind of just you know retouch on some of my thoughts and you know, and I was like, okay. So and then they walk off. I'm like, oh wait a second, they're actually not holding hands. This is like I read twice that they were holding hands in this. This is very interesting that we are emotionally so connected to this concept of them joining together. And being together at the end that they, you know, that we have physically made them touch more than what they actually are in the film. And I find that I find that to be fascinating. That's a that's one of those uh, filmic things that 
happens to a lot of people just in terms of uh, making those connections themselves. Um, and I, it's it's absolutely not 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 disparaging anything that anyone has said here today with the whole holding hands. It is no no no. They have a physical touch. She lays her head on his shoulders. They have a moment. Then they both do walk off mm. into the sunshine together, which mm. is is a big thing. You know, walking off into the yeah. light together. But uh, well, I think I think that's what makes that death so uncomfortable. Is it feels like it's too symbolic for the part of the film that is not the most interesting part of the film for us. You know what I mean? Like yeah. her being in her grief and, and and struggling through it and working through it and having that moment where she sleeps with another person to be able to find some sort of connection and realizes it's not there and then also we didn't talk about the fact that she has a moment where she masturbates and it's a moment of trying to connect with herself and she can't do it. Like she fails at it and her, and her son interrupts and she's crying her husband's name while she's doing it. Um, she also has that moment. So she's reaching to the outside world for affection and it's not working. She reaches internally in for this self-love that she can't achieve and then, you know, realizes she goes and hugs her son and at that moment also realizes she is not going to have a paternal love as well. Like it's like the the three, you know, the one, two, three punch. And that's when the moment she realizes, you know, she goes to the courtroom, maybe a legacy or some sort of greater purpose is the thing that she can live for. And then you get that court pronunciation, which it's also not the perfect ending for her. So it's like all these things are adding up to yeah. her wanting to. Well, it couldn't be more end. anticlimactic that sentence, right? It's like oh, you got completely. a sentence you don't deserve, but it's not happening for a year and a half. So don't worry about it right now. You're you get to go free. Yeah, just put a big pause on your life, yeah. and then no one's happy. the uh, The young lawyer's not happy because he finally gave in and didn't make a political statement. The old lawyer's not happy because you know this is not justice. The wife isn't happy because he did. He's still going to jail, and he's not happy because he gave up his uh, hunger strike right. for to make everyone happy, and then no one's happy. Like no one's happy in that scene. And there is Antec in the back saying, "See, this was the wrong approach." I was going to do it a different way and no one did it the yeah. right way. So there's that big question mark, what, you know. Well, and uh, the I don't want to dwell on the 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 ending too much, but I I, I will say I think part of the reason that I'm less uh uh willing to go there with him. I I think you're totally right, Travis, that it's it's the right ending for the political part of this movie, but it feels too icky for the the actual sort of core emotional arc that is much more engaging and interesting in the movie um but i think also just generally hishlovsky's um you know i think he's a really smart guy i don't share his pessimism entirely although i think it's very well founded um and as caitlin pointed out um it's quite easy to be pessimistic at this moment in uh both American and world history. But I think um, his opinion about death and uh, just generally is very, uh, it, do, it just doesn't jive with me. Like, he, it, you know, he's, he's, he says at one point that um, people who die 
they might get hit by a car or they have cancer or whatever it is um, that is the reason that people say that they die, but they really die because they have uh, no reason to go on living or they're no, they're no longer willing to, to live for anything, which fuck you. I'm sorry. That's just not like a thing. Like I'm sure that's true of some people. And of course, when you um, kill yourself, you have some, you have, uh, you know, obviously um, uh, a a mental illness that is uh, something that you can, um, that you could hopefully work to overcome. But at the same time, like that's something that you're, that that's with you forever. And, and ultimately there are some people who, decide that they can no longer go on. Um, but the, but to say that, that people who get sick or, um, you know, got the, the random, um, car that, that got into the bus accident in this movie, that those people, um, died because they could no longer go on living is, is, is a pretty tough pill to swallow as far as I'm concerned. And so looking at that, that attitude and, this this ending feels to me like he wants it to be a little too pat like he's not really um comfortable with confronting the fact that sometimes uh people die and it's shitty and it shouldn't have happened and it could have been avoided but uh we are left to kind of deal with the aftermath of that um and that there is no you know deeper meaning behind it that it just it just happened i didn't know he had said that um is it in one of his interviews that he did yeah it's it's in the it's Mm -hmm. is it in kishlowski on kishlowski travis i think it is yeah Yeah. Yeah. for some reason it surprises me like i just would never think of him saying something like that because you know his movies are so much about fate and chance and how random things can happen out of the blue and yeah, that sounds like like the law of attraction crap that I can't stand. You know that you get what you deserve, or yeah. you, know, you attract what happens right. to you. And I the don't secret. buy that. Yeah, yeah, the secret. I don't buy that at all. No. I like railed against it in a recent episode, but um, I, I hate like self help stuff and um, new age philosophy that makes people think that they're the reason they have cancer or their thoughts right. control their cancer and. It surprises me. I mean, especially considering he died so young and he had heart issues and um that's yeah, that's disappointing to to hear him say that. One of the one of the things I'm learning about uh Kishlowski, just like when we discovered uh Kubrick is uh he's his own worst enemy as he likes to talk opposite of sometimes what he's truly feeling about things it mm. appears. Yeah, I think he likes that's to the be, case. Yeah. you know hey, we see you're happy. I'm never happy. This is why. And, you know, he just kind of, and when we look at these focal, uh, this, it's it's the focal press uh, director series, director on director. So they just kind of uh, aggregate a lot of the interviews and turn it yeah. into kind of like a, a, you know, a complete thought that the director has. So sometimes it feels like some of the sentences may be out of context or, in in regards to something larger, you know, sometimes sometimes some of the sentences ring hollow, it's especially very punchy. after. 
Yeah, especially yeah. after reading a paragraph before where he's speaking very eloquently about the subject, and then the next paragraph, it's almost like he goes against what he just said. So, I mean, he is a complex person. Sure. He does have his own thoughts. Yeah, and, and good luck. About good it, luck but. finding a, like a famous person who hasn't said something dumb off the cuff in you know <laughs> oh, they have yeah. hundreds of interviews every year. So, <laughs> you know, oh, it doesn't it doesn't change how I feel about right, it. Or right. Anything. No, I still, not at all. I still like I don't think I don't think you maybe can create art if you're not complicated and maybe contradictory at times and you know he was definitely a complicated person i'm sure i haven't read all his interviews but i definitely want to read more of them it's a good book if you uh if you get a chance it's just yeah it's a i've I've liked that series i like how they approach the idea of oh yeah definitely interview aggregation um so i I do want to talk about labrador a little bit because i i feel like we have we've touched on him but we haven't really discussed his his sort of arc i mean i think he reminds me a lot of um, paul newman in the verdict um oh i love that film yeah it's uh that uh if you want to reduce me to a puddle of tears uh, just put on the oh, verdict um but so good. i mean i think that 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 film there's there's a, a real uh not to give away the verdict for people who haven't seen it but there is a real redemption arc in that film uh, that mm-hmm. that never comes here I think when you when you were talking about just sort of the defeated nature of sort of our current political um, attitude, I was thinking of Labrador a lot. I think even in the sense of, you know, he's lost something quite profound. And even if it isn't uh, as specific and intense and um, personally, uh, emotionally involved as um, what Ursula has lost. Um, he he had a certain expectation about what his life would be, and he's been reduced to what is essentially a personal injury attorney, as close as you can get in in communist Poland. Um, and uh, he really doesn't have any hope of anything being different. And and I think he has such a low opinion of himself and of his ability to change that. I don't think that there would be a situation in which he would be able to, you know, regain that uh, that optimism or at least sort of a, a sense of um, social responsibility that he once had in terms of actually feeling like he has the ability to make a difference. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and he, I mean, he's he's so much older than the other characters, so he's gone through you know many uh, many more sea right. cha- political sea changes uh in so it's almost like he's like well you know why bother it's going to change again everything's going to change yeah. nothing is well he's similar to the the party member that um that the protagonist of blind chance meets uh on the train in the first story right where he's yeah, he was exactly. he was jailed in the early 50s and then got out and you know it's like well yeah you know there was different people then it's different people now it'll be different people some other time and you know you, you do what you can to survive yeah with the uh with the young lawyer that's his assistant who wants him to make a statement and wants him to stay in and you know has the fire and the and the passion for uh, for political change and you know almost using this character as a as a goal for uh 
for him to kind of be like, you know, you've got to be the centerpiece. You've got to be this person. But then at the same time, there's the newspaper saying, and they've reassembled the workers' union without you, and they've they've moved on. Anything you do, it doesn't matter. And, you know, this hunger strike doesn't matter. None of it matters. The only person you're hurting is yourself and your family, which, you know, as we've noticed now, uh, a running theme in Kishlowski is it just ends up being about family and, you know, going back to it and starting it and having it and keeping it together. And that's why I think the, you know, the ending of Ursula's story is so uh, harsh is because in all the other films, with the exception of Blind Chance's third act, um, you know, the characters end up going off and having some sort of private life and getting away from the public aspects of uh, Polish society. And this film, you know, you know, when the character finally turns against and uh, and gives himself up and to go to his private life, his private life is in shambles at this point, you know, and it's it, there's no going back to it. Yeah, I mean, I think Labrador um, is more of certainly more of a, a device than a uh, fully fleshed out character but mm. he has to me I, I think that this performance um, uh, this guy's name is Alexander Bardini um, his performance I think makes him into a real person whereas his uh, intern um is just like is just a straightforward like I'm I'm just saying the words that are supposed to be said by a character in my situation. Yeah. And he doesn't feel very like he just doesn't feel like a fully fleshed out character. He just seems like a ideologue um and really just serve serving to to say, you know, what the opposition would say in that situation. Yeah, I think Labrador is just really practical. You yeah. know, he's like y'all said, he's he's seen it all. He probably saw World War Two and that was brutal mm. yeah. in Poland. Um so he probably just feels like just get out of jail. You know, let's let's do what we can right. to get you out. You can be with your child, you can be with your, your wife. I sort of had sympathy for him. It was he doesn't believe in these grand gestures or yeah. I mean what are what are your principles and ideals really when here is this system that crushes everybody in it. You know, uh Derek is just a cog in a machine really. And I think Labrador was thinking of more in practical terms of how can we get you out of this, get you back to your family so that you can go on with your life in some way. When I was reading up about the political situation in Poland, they said in the 80s, tens of thousands of people left Poland because of the situation there. You know, people just felt, I guess, a lot of hopelessness and it was just a difficult time, and some of that comes through the Decalogue, too, which I know y'all, you know, talk about and stuff, and, you know, it was, life was hard um, in Poland at that time. A lot of people fled from it and wanted a different life, and I think he's just trying to do the best for his client and yeah. get him out of there. Like, what does the hunger strike do? What what does it do, you know, really, um, when your your child's suffering, your wife is suffering, just get out and you know do the best that you can to just survive and get through it so i like bardini he's 
he's in several Kishlovsky films and he always does such an amazing yeah. job I think as an actor he's he has such a presence about him and I I loved how we saw some actors in this film that we'll see later on you know like uh um the woman that plays Ursula she'll be in the Decalogue and um a lot of different actors will recur throughout Kishlovsky's filmography and I don't know. I just always love seeing them, and but he's definitely one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah, you uh, the, go ahead, Travis. Was the coat check guy? I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't figure this out. You know the coat check guy that he talks about how we're taking my robe off for the final time pretty soon. They're retiring us. And yeah. The coat check guy just says something to him. Is that the is that the the driver that gets set on fire in a in a short working day? That's any, a. I would have to. I, I, I would have to go back and and check. That's a. That's a deep cut, Travis. I th- I think <laughs> I think it was. That's why I was just like, oh, this is great. Like, this I guy's did, popping back up. I did notice that Joanna's father is the guy who is in a in a short film about killing. He's the taxi driver. So mm. I saw a few uh, people that I recognized from other Kishlovsky films, and so. But um, I don't know. I think I just had more sympathy for Labrador. He's he's just not interested in that, in making some kind of statement or, you know, it didn't come off that way to me. He was just much more practical yeah. in trying to help Derek, you know. What do you guys think of this argument that he makes that um, for people who are trying to fight against the, um, uh, to fight against the martial law that they didn't they didn't die themselves that they that they chose to go on living and so therefore they are inherently practical that there's there's no you know there's no reconciling the idea that you're trying to make this work in some way um with 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 the idea that you would rebel against the system in what may appear to someone like labrador as an irrational approach i mean there, there's something to be said about that i mean it's it's weird it's a i mean it's only through looking back do you realize your efforts did you to stop the thing that's happening now you made no effort or you didn't try or your effort wasn't great enough so for him to who has been through probably a lot at this point to point out like Listen, you didn't go and die that day when we when when they rioted. No one rioted. No one did the stuff they're supposed to. You all accepted your fate. So you can either just keep your head down and just keep going until there is a change, or you live to fight another day to do something better than this. I don't know. It's it's hard. It's it's that's the long view, practical, sage, uh, you know, Zen type idea about it. Of like, why fight? It's inevitable. We're all gonna end at some point, and to you know you didn't you didn't make the grand gesture when the grand gesture was needed so this is not this is a futile gesture because no one's paying attention to you in here which you know it's totally practical and it's a it's like a cold glass of water to the face to him who's thinking you know who's probably you know in his mind he's making these big political statements he is you know people are going to sit up and take notice it's a big jury it's you know he's going to trial and it's really not, you know, it takes that older guy to say, listen, this isn't what you think it is. Yeah. I mean, I love these people who like think that, Oh, if I was in world war two, if I had been there during the Holocaust, I would have done this or that, or, um, or even in smaller ways, they'll say, Oh, if I was in that shooting, I would have grabbed the guy with a gun, like all these ridiculous things. 
well, now we're living through something pretty scary, right? And mm-hmm. I don't see people in the streets every day rioting. You know, people ha- just are trying to get through their day. And I'm sure when martial law happened, I mean, I can't even comprehend that. They said, I mean, from what I read, there were like tanks in the street. The military yeah. was in the street. There were curfews. There, People were being jailed for no reason. I mean, imagine if people came into, you know, our home, grabbed us, and just put us in jail for no reason. You know, you don't know how you'd react to it. Everybody likes to think, oh, I'd be brave. I'd be out there protesting. I'd be in the underground, you know. I'd be in the resistance. You don't know, you know. And when you're living through it, it's very different. You, We have the benefit of hindsight, of history, of seeing the way things played out. But when you're living in it, it's much harder. And so I think uh, Labrador is just trying to do the practical thing and help his client. And I just, I mean, maybe Derek isn't as brave as he thought he was. You know, he does stop the hunger strike. You know, he does sort of, I guess, take the deal, you know, to a certain extent. And because maybe he realizes that his small gesture isn't doing a lot. I mean, I'm not saying that people shouldn't do those gestures. There are people who are on the front lines, who are out in the streets, who are protesting, putting their lives on the line, and that's important what they're doing, you know. But I guess not everybody is capable of that, you know. Not everybody can do that. Yeah, and maybe people don't know, you know, what the right moment is for that hunger strike. You know, maybe this was yeah. a futile gesture, but somebody else in a different situation, in a Pol- sitting in a different Polish prison, mm-hmm. uh, could start a hunger strike that would change the course of Polish history. Um, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you yeah. you never know, and so it's always about weighing those different decisions and saying, well, is what I'm personally sacrificing in this situation worth? what would you know what would come of it like if i if i got in my car right now drove down to washington dc and punched donald trump in the face it would Mm -hmm. feel really good but would it do that much no it would just give people would get to see donald trump get punched in the face which would be great but it wouldn't do anything you know and and so like Mm -hmm. ultimately there is a decision that you have to make where it's like well what am i weighing here um, you know, am I willing to give up everything for something that ultimately would not necessarily make that big of a difference, you know? Um, so there, there is always that choice. And I, I do think it's easy for, um, Labrador to sit there and, and say, you know, you, what you're doing is stupid and you're being silly, um, because he's not risking anything in that situation. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, I mean, part of it is uh, the charm of the performance. But I think there is also this feeling he he acknowledges the fact that he is um, incapable of fully comprehending the value of any sort of uh, resistance or um, grand gesture, because ultimately what he's been reduced to is this just simple... um, you know, basically paper pusher, um, who is only, uh, focused on when he's going to retire. Um, and then, then that's crystallized in his last, uh, speech, which is the, a, a quote, um, about, uh, about 
basically from the perspective of a dog wondering uh, how he became a mangy dog from a wolf. Um, it's a very powerful uh, comment and I think probably went a long way towards uh, the emotional connection that people in Poland felt to this film when it was released because it, it's a pretty intense uh, concept to think about yourself in that way of being subjugated to the point where you are uh, no longer able to, um, you know, live your own destiny out uh, and make choices for yourself. Yeah, I think the film shows the damage of the system and what it does to individuals and how hard it is to fight back against it and how beaten down and worn down that you can get. I think it definitely shows the damage of that. Yeah, yeah I think... You know, the amount of times they mentioned that the the original name of this movie was going to be Happy Ending, it's more depressing to have this name no end because there is no end in sight for a lot of that type of uh, struggle that a lot of people face uh, in then, now, and probably in the future as well. So, I really like that in the this section of the Kishlowski and Kishlowski, he threw shade at two major cinema titans for the titles that they gave their movies because he he trashed happy ending because he was like no that's too that's too pat i'm not going to do that and then he also said uh, that the documentary when he was filming the trials was he was like i can't even remember what it was going to be called was going to be called faces Faces. no that's too (laughs) pretentious i'd never name a movie that What's the happy ending refer? Oh, that's to? the new uh, that, or it's not new anymore. But the last Haneke movie was uh, was called Happy oh, Ending. Oh yeah, yeah, Haneke. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he didn't know that movie at the time, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, but I thought that was yeah. Really I thought funny. of that. I thought of the Haneke film. Yeah. I was like, oh, it has happy end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So this uh, the other thing here, obviously, is this is uh, Zbigniew Prizner's uh, first score for. Uh, Kieślowski's movies he would go on to score all of the forthcoming movies Um, and there's even uh, sort of traces of the score for Blue in the score here Um, so you know as you mentioned Caitlin this is a real transition film both in terms of actors that he would go on to work with um, the female protagonist the uh, composer the co-writer um, this is, uh, you know, along with Blind Chance, and I really feel like these two movies are very closely linked just in terms mm-hmm. of the both the poli- political history, but also Kieślowski's career and sort of the leap that they took. Um, you know, this is this is the last movie before he became an international sensation. And it's also the the sort of first movie of the rest of his career in terms of the people that he'd be working around but just in terms of Preisner um, did you uh, have any any further thoughts on on his uh, music here Caitlin well I've always thought that Preisner is like integral to Kishlovsky's greatest film the the scores and the music I mean I still listen to those soundtracks all the time I listen 
to Decalogue and the Three Colors and the Double Life of Veronique. I think when I watched Veronique, one of the things that entranced me so much was the music yeah. and that and that marionette scene, you know, and the music. So I don't think we talk enough about the importance of soundtracks and of scores when it comes to, I think, some of the emotional power of cinema. I am like a fanatic about film scores. I just love listening to them all the time. And um, they're, for me, like a way to relive the film, especially, and to re-enter the world that the film creates. And I just think Prisoner does an amazing job. We don't hear the music a lot in the film. It's just yeah. kind of like under the surface a few times. And I think it's fascinating that that score will recur in Blue, because blue three colors blue is also about a woman grieving but she has a completely different path in life than ursula does you know it's almost like maybe you know maybe he wanted to come back to that theme and maybe he wanted to tell that story again in a different way i don't know that but i just find it interesting that he circles back to this grieving widow and then the music comes back and music's actually really important in blue too but um I just think that there's an emotional power to this film because of the music, especially that cemetery. I actually did want to talk about one particular scene just for a second where they're at the cemetery at the end and she lights the match. This is one of the most haunting images from this film and probably from any Kishlovsky film for me is she strikes that match and she almost breaks the fourth wall. If that's, yeah. if that's the right way of putting it um, and looks directly into the camera and says, um, I guess she's speaking to Antek, obviously, and she says, I love you. And her her face is like in darkness, and there's just that little bit of light from the match. And the music, I think the music's playing during that scene. Yes. Um, but it's especially playing during the cemetery scene. And, um, oh my gosh, like that's that's art film to me. That's art house cinema to me is like having um, scenes like that that completely just are just so haunting and just take you over in their beauty and their emotional power and what they represent to you. Like here's this woman speaking to her dead husband and Oh Lord, I I love that scene. I love the music and Prisoner's work is just a gift. He's one of my favorite composers. Yeah. There's a, there's a, that, that scene is absolutely gorgeous. I mean, not even, Remember just the fact that she's lighting herself with the match. Uh, she's holding it, and you see it burning her fingertips. But at the same time, as she's feeling this pain, she's uh, you know talking about her deep love for her husband and staring right at us while doing it. So you can't help but feel like emotionally and physically connected to her in that moment. And sh- she does it again when she has the scene where she's uh, masturbating. She's she breaks the fourth wall for a moment. And she's staring right at us as she's doing it and Mm. it's so you know it's uncomfortable but also so connecting because you're seeing her feel for for once something different besides the sadness and then you just see it just kind of completely go away and it you you know you a lot of times you're you're the stand-in for Antec as she's uh reaching out to this world which you're a part of and then she turns away from it it's it's yeah. that that kind of work that he's doing in this movie with that is uh is really effective and can i say i almost would have preferred the match scene to be the ending of just mm. imagine an ending like that where they're at the cemetery she looks in the camera she lights that match 
And I think that would have, that maybe would have been a better ending for me and to keep it ambiguous, yeah. to keep it open-ended so that you don't know if she kills herself. You don't know if she goes on or if she keeps going or it's just, it would have been like this moment where the dead and the living connect, I guess. And I maybe, yeah. maybe that would have been a more satisfying ending for me rather than, oh, let's, let's put her with this oven. And I just don't know if I believed that her as a character would, that she is a character would have done that actually i i don't know if there's anything else in the film that indicates well this is how this woman's life is going to end you know i don't know if i fully believed it right but gosh when she when she looks into that camera and just the darkness and then the light and oh that scene i I still can't get over that (laughs) i try to imagine this film as what 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 other scenes of learning about her and her process would we have gotten if we didn't have the courtroom drama that we have to be right. a part of. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. just, and that's, I think, I think that's why when you, Caitlin says, you know, he revisits this in blue, I think that's his, he also says, you know, this was the thing that this movie should have been about. And let's, let's revisit this and do this uh, another way. Let's, let's re let's retouch upon this idea of grief and loss and lonely, you know, and it's, it is a powerful subject. I could spend, I can spend many hours watching her stare off into the distance, contemplating thought, you know, just whatever is going through her head at that moment and just, you know, take in the bathe in her grief. You know, it's 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 very powerful. And, yeah, I mean, I think uh, the 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 weakness of these early Kieślowski movies is their bluntness. And mm-hmm. uh, this ending is very blunt um, and yes. and sort of on the nose and and this uh that that would be a a much more ambiguous and beautiful ending and i think um could have that same sort of uh you know uh wistful um mourning in the way of them walking off together into the distance without actually providing that concept of her killing herself to be with her her dead husband um you know you get this connection through uh through the um barrier of death um and i think that i i i'm fully on board with that i would i would be uh be a lot more um appreciative of this ending if it had ended there um and yeah i mean the she's she's just so magnetic so i would have taken definitely another 45 minutes of her instead of the rest of uh the story here so uh but but again i mean i think as a whole this film is very effective um and and i think for me the the score at the end is uh extremely intense and haunting and sad mm-hmm. and uh i i can't imagine that scene with any other music and i think that aspect of it does make it sort of work more effectively in the moment it's only when i sort of step back i have a little bit more of a criticism of it but i think it's so effective with that music and i think the music does a big part of that and it certainly does in blue i mean i don't think blue would be half the movie that it is without the music in it. and of course the this the story is designed around that uh knowing that he was going to be able to deliver the kind of music that um, that he could because he had Prisoner working with him. 
So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, this is definitely a big step for him in terms of the people that he has around him. And I think um, Paisevich also is uh, somebody who gave him, uh, at the very least, I think, more uh, more of a sense of uh, a grander world. You know, I think his his earlier films are so hyper focused on one character, and it feel this feels like the the movie where he was able to stretch out a little bit, have more characters, have people who aren't necessarily just stand-ins for him as a young man kind of situation, mm-hmm. um, and so I, it feels like a very different writing process than it did before there's still all of the kishlovsky elements here in terms of like the certainly the thematic elements uh, both in terms of fate and chance and stuff like that but also glass and hands and all of those things um there's also those the sort of like little quirky things that are sprinkled in um you know like the question mark or one thing we didn't mention here was the um the pictures, the naked pictures of her that had been sent to her husband and he had um, cut out the face, her face in them uh, and then sealed them up in, in the envelope and hid them away. Um, things like that are, you know, very, they feel very Kieślowski to me. Uh, they have sort mm-hmm. of this deep mystery behind them, but at the same time they fit right in with the rest of the movie thematically. So um, those aspects are all still here, but I feel like the characters are a lot more fleshed out and the world around this central character has mm-hmm. more life to it. And there's just something about when he started to pivot to women as his main characters that something just bloomed, I think. Yeah. I mean, my favorite films by him are with his female protagonists. Yeah, definitely. And it's similar with mm-hmm. Ingmar Bergman for me. Like, I love Bergman's films about women. Like, cries and whispers and summer interlude and i don't think it gets talked about enough how powerful his female characters are and i would say it's the same with kishlovsky like the films that hit me the hardest and just seem to have this emotional depth and richness are the films like blue and red and veronique and even no end at least with the personal part with ursula and um you know also I think with this film, he's becoming the Kishlovsky that he's going to become famous for being, right? I mean, he has these different collaborators. And also, I think we have to allow directors to make mistakes, you know, to to make films that are maybe not the best. I mean, I still wonder, like, how would Kishlovsky have existed with social media where it's like everything's so critical now? Yeah. You know, when directors release films, they have to deal with that criticism, like, on the spot, of every film that they make and sometimes you're going to make mistakes it's not going to come together perfectly but as he made more films you know as he did decalogue as he went into three colors i just think he really just came into his own and made so many masterpieces it's it's fascinating to think about how many films he made within such a short period of time the 10 films of the decalogue the three of the the trilogy the veronique like he was like on a he was just in a frenzy almost yeah. making all these films. It probably didn't help his health much, but I'm I'm grateful for these films. I mean, he made more films in his short time than some directors make in their entire lifetime. Right. 
and I just always wonder about the lost potential of what would have happened if he had if he had I know he had retired uh before he died but you never know yeah you know, he could have could have still came back made more films I think he but, would have yeah yeah I don't think he I don't think he could pot, he knows the word retire I think he I did know. it but he would have yeah. come right back I, I think I think the point you make is really is really uh, well said because about sort of directors today expecting to be perfect right out of the gate. Um, you know, this is ten years into his career as a as a narrative filmmaker. Now he was a documentary filmmaker for five years previous to that. Um, so this is you know deep into somebody's career where. He, he was certainly well-known in Poland at this point, but he was nowhere near the success that he would be in a few short years um, when this movie was released. And, um, you know, Bergman is another good example of that. Bergman didn't have uh, any sort of international success or, for that matter, success in Sweden um, until Smiles of a Summer Night, which was nearly a decade into his career. Um, and I think he had 10 films by then. So, you know, this is, uh, you know, most of the greatest directors in history are like that. You know, Hitchcock made mm-hmm. a bunch of terrible silent movies. He made some good ones, too, but he made some really bad ones. Um, you know, Ozu, we unfortunately don't know what his first film looked like, but it was not well received. Um, so these, these filmmakers had a lot of time, you know, Powell and Pressburger is another good example. Like Powell, he was directing quota quickies for a decade before he hooked up with Pressburger and made some of the greatest films of all time. So we don't let these filmmakers develop in the same way. And part of that is the death of the studio system and the fact that now movies cost so much and it's really hard to take a risk on new talent, but this is a filmmaker who, you know, I mean, I think anybody who knows how movies are made would look at his movies and know he ha- uh, these early films and knows n- know that he knows how to put together a film. But I don't necessarily know that looking at these movies that we have uh, covered now, this is the seventh movie that we've covered, that that there is the capability of creating the film that we're going to cover next time in Decalogue. I think this this leap is is quite extraordinary, despite the fact that I think this is a really solid film and, and Blind Chances mm-hmm. is very solid as well. But um, yeah, it, it is fascinating to think about the fact that in, in a lot of um, economies of film, uh, someone like Kieślowski would, we would not know who he was because he would have he would have never made it to this point in his career. Yeah. No, that's yeah. They don't. There is no work for craftsmen anymore. Yeah, it's artists or not. Like it's it's crazy how there is no tradesman type directors who work at their craft and hone their craft through years and years of doing things. I mean, that's uh, that's the whole point of this uh, of this kind of podcast. We're watching this evolution of these directors and how they move throughout their career and their missteps and their successes and Mm -hmm. what works and what doesn't and he definitely you know this movie is not a perfect film but there is there is a beautiful gem in the middle of this film that he mines out and 
and presents to us later in his career and and moves forward from like stepping stones are just as important in terms of uh the overarching uh career of any any artist and seeing those minor works in between the larger ones helps really helps us understand and appreciate those movies more and so when we see this movie and we talk about no end and we talk about how this is the thing that we really connected with well that's us as foreigners looking at this movie who knows maybe mm, what everyone connected yeah. with in Poland was the political drama of it oh i think and it how was that spoke yeah. to them which is yeah. which is super which is also interesting because he was he's of two minds making two completely different types of things and trying to tie them together into a story that works for everyone and you know does, is it successful not 100% but there's stuff in here that is absolutely stunning yeah. that I will remember forever. And yeah, I was going to say like I don't want it to come off like I don't like the films that were set in Poland or like they're terrible or bad. It's like he's beloved in Poland and there's nothing wrong with making films that speak to your culture and your society. Right. And like you said, I'm sure Polish people watching these films or like the Decalogue, have a very different relationship with them. Of here is someone representing the society they live in, and that's very powerful. And um, I like Camera Buff. I like Blind Chance. I like No End. Yeah. So I hope I don't. I hope I haven't come off like oh, no, well, that's, they're they're oh, just no. inferior and mediocre. Like no, I don't want not. I don't want people listening to think that either, or that I'm saying that oh they're lesser because they focus on Poland. You know. Poland is a complex country. It's totally fine, you know, to they have a national cinema and just like Ozu and what he did in, in representing Japanese society, that's a beautiful thing. Um, it's just I feel like when he got into the decalogue, when he got into those trilogy the trilogy in Berenice, there was just um there was something special in those that are a bit different from yeah. what he did before. But I love the idea of your podcast, how you are going through the filmography. Because the way films are now, it's actually hard to explore one director's filmography, if you think about it. Everything's fragmented on different streaming sites. Some directors, their work is not even fully yeah. available to the public, unless you can afford DVDs or something like that. So it's actually rare for you to watch one director's entire body of work and be able to see, well, where did they start and how did they develop and what happened here? And, you know, um, and that's unfortunate. I wish that we had more yeah. access to the full filmographies of more directors. Um, so I love that y'all, y'all are doing that. You did it with Elaine May and then now you're doing it with Kishlovsky. And I think that's really valuable and, maybe we'll inspire people to think more about the full film filmographies of directors and to explore them, you know? Yeah, there's, there's quite a few. Well, thank you. And yeah, there's a, there's quite a few directors we'd love to cover that um, we mm, simply can't yeah. because we don't have access to some of their films. Um, and, and even where, you know, on, on this season, uh, we've reviewed quite a few of his television films, uh, his early television films, which are not currently available anywhere. Uh, and the only reason that we have them is because they they were on a uh, now out of print box set uh, in the UK. So in order to have in order to get those films, not only do you have to be able to afford Blu-rays, you have to be able to afford a region-free player and 
import it mm-hmm. from the UK. Um, so it, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's frustrating how um, unavailable these films are, and and especially considering the fact that you know the, the, there's not a large audience for the calm. I'm aware of that, um, <laughs> but I think I think that should that should should benefit it. Uh, in this digital age of being able to put things on streaming and things like that, instead of be a hindrance because there's not a lot of people who are going to be, uh, you know, buying a DVD or a Blu-ray to warrant the cost of production. It, it's kind of a contradiction, isn't it? That you would think that streaming would yeah. liberate these films. I certainly thought that's what was going to happen, you know, cause, Oh, we'll put them on a streaming side. It's going to be maybe more cost effective than churning right. out DVDs or whatever. And that's not what's happening. Yeah. I feel like art house is, it's even more niche at this point. Yeah. You know? Well, it is nice. I mean, it's nice to, to have things like the almost complete Ozu catalog on, on the criterion oh, yeah. channel and things like uh-huh. that. But yeah, that it's, it's, it is frustrating. Even on criterion channel, you know, there's some spectacular Narosei films on on there, and and yet there's just uh, you know an infinite, not an infinite, but a, he, four or five times as many of his films that are still currently unavailable uh, anywhere, streaming or on disc uh, outside of Japan. So it is frustrating, and um, but yeah, we're 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 coming up here. Uh, on the big ones that are available oh, everywhere. Yeah. So at least now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so we, uh, we generally rank these movies as we go, uh, on this podcast. Uh, I'm not going to make you do that cause you don't, you know, <laughs> uh, I won't put you through that. We, we know your top is double life of Veronique. Um, but, mm-hmm. uh, I was just curious sort of where you'd sit no end in his, uh, pre decalogue films is this, would this be your favorite of those movies? And if not, which one would you would you hold above it? It's hard because I saw Camera Buff and Blind Chance like lo- a long time ago, like several years ago. Yeah. And um, I mean, probably No End would be at the top. I liked Blind Chance. I loved the concept of it. Yeah. Of it that like, oh well, what if he isn't he like trying to catch a train? Yeah. And it's like two. It's like three different versions of what would have happened in his life. And so I, I really loved the concept of that one, but I, I connect sort of more emotionally to no end. So that would probably be one number one and then blind chant and then maybe camera buff. I don't think I've seen anything before camera buff. Um, I think that's the earliest I've been able to go with. Yeah. There's only one theatrical, uh, feature before that, which is the scar, Mm -hmm. um, which, which I, uh, was on the criterion channel under Filmstruck, but has not been uploaded to uh, to the new Criterion channel for some reason, so I'm hoping that they rectify that in the near future. Yeah, I think that was one I wanted to get to because it's one of the missing pieces for me because yeah. I've seen almost all of his work, yeah. All right, Travis. What do you think? Man, it's, uh, it's tough. I agree. I, uh, <laughs> this one, uh, <laughs> this one uh, it... It, you know until we had this long conversation about it you know it was kind of it's it was faltering in my is hopping all over my list and uh you know the scar is still my lowest ranked one short working day right after it personnel the calm um this one was almost right there between calm and camera buff mm. but the more i think about her performance and the more i think about i mean 
that storyline it just kind of it, it it propels that movie forward so far in my estimation because it is it is emotionally raw it is really hard to watch uh she her performance itself is just absolutely stunning and amazing and this really is the linchpin for him to turn on to completely uh, embrace uh, his modern filmmaking that he continues on from here on out so uh, you know camera buff blind chance and no end no end beats it even with the weaker side storyline her 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 storyline is that is the film that I wanted to see and I am not feeling like I was disappointed by that at all so it kind of blows it away because uh, you know as much as camera buff and blind chance has technically fantastic things and I am emotionally invested in uh, uh, Yerge's, uh performance in camera buff and his uh, you know his naivety and the way he moves throughout that that world that is uh, that he's discovering uh, the way that Ursula moves through her bleak and tragic world that she's in uh, is just blows away all other things that are that he's come before. So uh, it rockets right to number one. Wow! Um. I know it was hard. <laughs> like it was right there, always floating between them, and you know I just can't stop thinking about her and her scenes. Like it's just. Yeah. It just really, really strikes a chord in me. So I think we're going to depart for the first time uh I know. Uh on the on the on the season so far. Um I I think I'm gonna put this uh right at number two below blind chance. Um Okay. I am I could easily have this at number one. I think these two films are are far and away the best of of the bunch um but i think blind chance it's funny because i think blind chance uh doesn't have the peaks of this film but it also doesn't have the valleys um Mm -hmm. and so i think for that reason it's sort of it's a it's it's sort of a a consistently strong film that i think had the opportunity to be a a truly great movie. I think this movie is more of a mess, but it's also much richer and intellectually complex. And I think it fails a little bit, um, but I am impressed with what it's doing. Um, So it is very close for me, but I still feel like Blind Chance is the the best representation of sort of everything he's done to this point. Those are the same challenges I was going through yeah. as I made my list. Yeah. Like it, I mean, it is nothing but scribbles on my piece of paper moving yeah. from here. And but there. I certainly think that this film, again, a light camera buff is very worthy of a bigger audience. And I do hope it, that at some point it will be released on Blu-ray um, just to get a little bit more of a of a profile, um, you know, it would be great if they would feature do a Kieślowski in Poland uh, mini bundle on uh, Criterion Channel. Um, yeah, you know, these things, yeah. the, these films are are really worth seeing. And as we um, transition 
into into the the rest of his career i i just really hope that people seek out these films uh i'm sure nobody listening to this point in this podcast uh you know i don't need to worry about any of them but tell everybody tell your friends these movies are these movies are really interesting and i think um they're they're never boring you know that they're very engaging and um and often moving um especially i think i'm I'm most happy that we did this um to see films like the calm and uh and 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 this because i think that they're not movies that come up as frequently when his movies are discussed and i think that they should be more often because they're they're really strong um no i i agree and i think uh the thing i'm looking forward to the most in seeing no end receive some sort of physical release is uh more uh context whether it be yeah. theory or history or just uh, other people's uh, takes on the film, because that is something I always do appreciate in the physical media yeah. realm is being able to put these films in a larger context. Yeah, it was used. There's not a ton of supplements on the Blind Chance disc, but the the supplements were very useful in that in that regard. Um, Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on and taking uh, this this long Sunday evening uh, stroll yes. with us. It was really uh, yes, thank you wonderful. so much. Thanks so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed talking about the film with y'all. Um, so Travis, uh, this is it, my friend. <laughs> next, next time we are covering the first two episodes of Decalogue. It's, it's. Uh, I'm super excited. As uh, continuous listeners know, uh, this is a huge blind spot for me. I should have seen this by now, but. Uh, I'm glad I waited because uh, I'm sure the films will be so much more uh, richer because of my uh, because of this uh, history now I have going into these films. Yeah. So I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah, and and for people who are listening, we're going to be covering um, the the Decalogue two episodes at a time, except for episodes I believe it's five and six, which are the shorter versions of an active kill a uh, short film about killing and a short film about love. So we'll cover five and a uh, short film about love and six and a short film about killing. I hope that's the right order. It may be reversed. Um, <laughs> but, and then we will cover each of the other episodes two at a time. Uh, so it will be six episodes in total on the Decalogue, which, uh, at our rate will probably be about, uh, 47 hours of conversation <laughs> but uh yeah but I'm, I'm there's gonna be some full hard drive yes yeah but um but we'll and we'll have a different guest for each each one um so we'll get a lot of takes on decalogue and uh it's gonna be fun but not but also soul crushing <laughs> uh, you know whenever we have to talk about the bible <laughs> It can be really challenging. Oh, Travis, you have no idea what you're in for. Just uh, you, the um, first, the first episode uh, is going to rip out your heart. Will my will my ten years at Catholic school finally no, come into play no. for some useful no. useful reason? No, but your uh, your what um, nine nine ten years of fatherhood will 
no, come in very handy. <laughs> no, no. All right. Kaylin, thank you so yes, much once again. You. And it, please, if you, if anyone who's listening has not heard her head in films, uh, highly recommend it. It is well worth every episode listening Absolutely. to. So please check it out. Thank you so much. And with that, we're complete for another week. 25thframemedia.com, a listener-supported network 